0: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this webinar. I have something quite exciting for you and super practical. The title of the webinar is How to Connect the Gospel to Everyday Life. My name is Rick Thomas, and I am thankful that you have joined me for this webinar. For those of you who are listening by audio, thank you very much if you do have the time please make your way over uh, to our ministry's website so that you can watch the full presentation how to connect the gospel to everyday life this is a super practical webinar that will benefit you i want to share with you the big idea our attitudes words and actions generate in our hearts i think we all know this uh, jesus told us this in luke 6 45, that from the abundance of our hearts, our mouth speaks. Therefore, there is no discontinuity between who we are internally and our external selves. You can make sub- subjective Judgments about a person as you observe their behavior. I do say subjective because we can't ultimately know objectively, but there is a truth here that we do not want to dismiss that who we are on the inside, our souls, our hearts, I'm saying here, that it manifests in our external selves. Therefore, if we are ontologically affected by the gospel, the things we think, the things we say, the things we do will have a gospel-centered vibe and effect to it. Therefore, I want to talk about both sides of our dichotomy, who we are in- uh, internally. I'm talking about our ontology or our state of being And how our state of being must be controlled, managed, supervised by the gospel. We want to be gospel-centered in our hearts, and if that is true, uh, then it will affect what we think, what we say, and what we do. And so I want to bring to you a super practical webinar, how to bring the gospel to bear in our everyday lives. And again, for those of you who are listening by audio, please come over because I have some uh, animation, some visuals that would be very important to you. This is a practical webinar that we all need to understand. So let me uh, walk you through the outline briefly, and then I'll jump into the points that I want to make. The outline is, point number one, what is the gospel? Since we want our ontology, our state of being, to be gospel-saturated, it is important that we understand what the gospel is, so that is point number one. But then I also want to talk about some strange derivations of the gospel, some practices that Christians have that can take us off the center line of the gospel, and the first one is, point number two, the danger of principles. Now, I'm not saying that principles are altogether bad. But again, the goal is to be gospel-centered. And if we are principle-centered or principle-driven, well, you can't be two things at the same time. We will not be gospel-centered. Therefore, we want to talk about the danger of principles. And then another thing that I've seen in many believers' lives is what I call the danger of pleasing God, that we do not have a proper relationship with the Lord, and we can be legalistic in our tendencies. And if we are, then again, that will also take us off that gospel center line as well. And so the outline is, number one, what is the gospel? And then I want to talk about the danger of principles. Then number uh, three, I want to talk about the danger of pleasing God, and then the last half of the webinar is the very practical part of it where I want to talk about how to connect the gospel to real life, and you'll be very uh, pleased with this presentation. I'm going to talk about 12 uh, different aspects of our lives, and I want to draw a straight line from these behaviors or these aspects that we live I wanna draw it back to our ontology, our state of being to the gospel. And that brings us to uh, the name of the webinar, Connecting the Gospel to Everyday Life, and that is point number four. And then number five, I want, to have, I want to present to you some application questions and reflective thoughts that I trust will challenge you so that you can work this material into your minds, like kneading dough. I want you to work it in and work it in good, and these application questions and reflective thoughts will help you to do that. And so that is our outline, and with that in mind, let's start with point number one, what is the gospel? Now, the way that I want to present this to you is I want to by the way that I want to define the gospel is I want to talk about how we must distinguish between the gospel, what the gospel is and the effect of the gospel Uh, You could say that these are two sides of the same coin. There is the gospel and there is the effect. And sometimes we think that the effect of the gospel is the gospel. And I want to spend time dialing in on this because it is so important. If we're going to be gospel-centered, if we are going to connect the gospel to our practical lives, then we have to know what the gospel is. And so I want to be abundantly clear in defining the gospel, because how we begin this discussion is going to determine how we end. Our starting point will impact our ending point. Therefore, I want you to be clear, and I'm going to work hard during this webinar to be clear, what is the gospel? Now, the way that I want to answer that initially is by talking about what the gospel is not. The gospel is not salvation. That is the effect. You remember the sub-point in the previous slide, There is a difference between what the gospel is and what the gospel does, the effect of the gospel. The gospel is not salvation. That is what the gospel does. That is an effect. Praise God for salvation. Praise God that he would impose himself into our lives and regenerate us so that we can be born again. That is an experience that we have as we are affected by the gospel, and so the gospel is not salvation. The gospel is not the Bible. Now, the Bible presents the gospel to us. The Bible tells us what the gospel is, but the gospel and the Bible are two different things. The gospel is not grace. Grace is the instrumentation. That takes us to salvation. You can think of grace like a vehicle. It's a means. It's it's the instrumentation as we talk about it in theology. And so you get in the vehicle, and it takes you from point A to point B. And so grace is the instrumentation that takes you from darkness to light, but grace is not The gospel. And the gospel is not a thing. And then finally, the gospel is not obedience. And I will talk more about what obedience is and how obedience works out in our lives when I get to point number three the danger of pleasing God. But as you see here on the slide, uh, by defining the gospel, part one, I want to talk about what the gospel is not. It is not salvation, it's not the Bible, it's not grace, it's not a thing, it's not obedience. Now, these things are important. These things are essential, I don't know about a thing, point number four here, but these things are essential to to living a Christian life, but these are the effects of what the gospel does to us. And so with that in mind, what is the gospel? Well, many of you know the gospel, or you define the gospel as good news. And I do think that if you were to uh, speak to any Sunday school class and ask them what the gospel is, the majority of the people would say, well, it is the good news. And that's a good answer. The gospel is, uh, it is very good news, but I want to dial it down into more specificity. The gospel is a person that that's what the gospel is the the gospel is a person the, the gospel is the savior to give him another title the gospel is Jesus the gospel is Christ the gospel is the son of god all six of these things that i just listed for you are synonyms they're different ways of saying the same thing jesus is the good news, Jesus is the gospel, and it's important that we understand that. Now because of the gospel, because of Christ, we can experience salvation, we can be affected by Christ, and the effect is salvation. We can be motivated to be obedient because of the gospel. We learn about the gospel through the Bible, But again, the gospel, the good news, is a person, the Savior. His name is Jesus. We call him Christ as well, or the Son of God. He is the gospel. To say it another way, the gospel is the person And the work of Christ. And as you look at that on the slide, I I don't want you to miss this. When I define the gospel, I divide it up in the very dichotomy that I'm going to appeal to you and me to live by, because again, there's no discontinuity between the person, who we are, and the work that we do. And so when we talk about Christ or the gospel, we're talking about who he is and what he does, because there's there's no discontinuity between the person and the work that he does. And so the gospel is the person and work of Christ. We would not experience the gospel without his work. We would not experience the gospel without his person. And so the totality of the gospel is the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And because of his person and his work, There is a full gospel that affects us and allows us uh, to be saved, allows us to experience regeneration. Now, we want to imitate that. We want to imitate the gospel through and through, meaning our ontology is a... A close representation is infused with the gospel, our person. And then out of that person comes a, a work, uh, attitudes, words, behavior. We uh, want to be gospel-centered, and if we truly are gospel-centered, then the person and work of, of Rick will look a lot like the gospel or look a lot like Christ. And so when we talk about the person and work of Christ— We can say this as we continue to get down into a granular level of what the gospel is. The gospel is all that Jesus was in eternity past, all that Jesus is. Is right now, present tense, all that Jesus will ever be. The gospel has always existed. It existed in eternity past. The gospel will exist in eternity future. The centerpiece of the gospel uh, that we are most familiar with are the the four gospels in, and again, that's, let's say, little g, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke and John, those four gospels. Gospels, those presentations of Christ, well, that is like the centerpiece of the gospel where we see his birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension. But the gospel is all that he was in the past, all that he is right now, and all that he ever will be. That is the ontology of the gospel. And then, because the gospel is the person and work of Christ, it's not just his ontology, the gospel is all that Jesus did and all that he will do. Now, now, again, this is what we want to emulate to be gospel-centered, the person and work of Christ, the person and work of Rick, the person in work of you. Uh, We want our ontology, who we are at the core of our being, our souls, to be gospel-centered, and then what flows out of that is our activity, and if our ontology is gospel-centered, then theoretically our activity will be gospel-centered as well. The gospel was in eternity past, as I said before, and will be in eternity future. That is a powerful and profound understanding of the gospel. And so the centerpiece, and this is where uh, we will focus on as far as applying the gospel to our lives, because the gospel came and became man, and that's who we are. We are human beings. And so in order for us to emulate the gospel and to be affected by the gospel or to be affected by Christ, then it is best for us to zero in on the center point of the gospel in between those two eternities. Eternity past and eternity future is the life of Christ. And so the centerpiece of the gospel is his birth, death, cross, resurrection, and ascension. And so we will focus on that aspect of who the gospel was and and what the gospel did, and then that's what we want to emulate in our lives. And so when you are affected by the gospel— then it will have a noticeable objective change in your life. When you apply Christ or apply the gospel to your life, it will affect you internally and externally. Now, when you're discipling someone, it is imperative that you do not bypass the necessity of being gospel-centered, or maybe you could say it this way, to be gospel-affected. When a person is rightly affected by Christ, by the gospel, they will be rightly motivated to live for Christ. There's the dichotomy there. Out of our ontology, a gospel-centrism flows right motivation and right works that flows out of our gospel-centered life. What you don't want to do, whether it's in your own life or in those that you disciple, is to focus so much on living the right way, but you haven't fully addressed how they have been affected by the gospel, because again, your starting point will affect your ending point and if you load everything on the work side of this formula of living a good life you will find yourself uh, or or that person you, you can really uh, do a disservice to that person because you haven't talked enough about uh, the motivation for those activities that we do and you'll find so often in uh, counseling or discipleship when people come to you and they are struggling they more times than not, are going to be focused on how to have the right behavior in order to accomplish some goal. And you can hear in that that their motivation is off-center. Their motivation is to get back a spouse or to have a a child to walk with the Lord or some other objective in their life. That is their motivation, and that motivation is not necessarily bad, but it has to be tertiary to our primary motivation, and our primary motivation is is, uh, we want to obey out of our great affection for Christ, regardless of what it brings to us, regardless of what our activity brings to us. Therefore, when you're helping a person or assessing yourself, you want to make sure that one, you are rightly affected by the gospel. And as you are being affected, by the gospel, which is an incremental progression, progressive sanctification, you're growing in greater affection for the gospel, then it will impact the motivations and the activities that you do. All discipleship must assure that the disciple has been rightly affected by the gospel. Now, that is a subjective assessment, obviously. We cannot see the heart. We cannot know the heart in an objective way. But we do not want to bypass this point because we want to situate as much as we can, humanly possible. We want to cooperate with God in communicating clearly the necessity of being in love with the gospel and affected by the gospel, because you know that is the only way that they will have sustained sanctification, sustained behaviors or activity in their lives. All discipleship must assure, as much as you reasonably can, that the disciple has been rightly affected by the gospel. Before you can go forward You must make sure the gospel is rightly motivating the person for short and long-term change. Again, that is a subjective assessment, but it is important that we do not move past being affected by the gospel as we get into counseling people on the behavioral side of what is going on in their life. Now, with that in mind, I want to talk about two dangers that can really subvert the gospel, and it can move you off the center line. The first one is the danger of principles. Principles are popular, and, and principles, they work or they can work as a a practical replacement for the gospel. Now, what I'm going to share with you briefly here is that I am not throwing principles out with the bathwater. There is a need for principles, but I, I want you to understand that Principles also are a tertiary matter to the gospel, and sometimes people can be so riveted by and in in such a search for the right principle to apply to their life that it weighs too heavy. They're out of balance because they are looking for some pragmatic thing or a pragmatic result in their life, and they see principles as a vehicle to get them uh, to where they want to go, and it can circumvent the need that we all have to be rightly affected and motivated by the gospel. And so the principle-driven life, not throwing principles out altogether, but it can be dangerous, And I'll give you several reasons for that. One, the principle-driven life can be too confusing, trying to find the right principle and apply the right principle to your life. And then when you apply the principle because you're principle-driven, centered, and it doesn't give you the result that you want, all that you can lean into is the principle that you have When you are a gospel-centered person and you're rightly affected and motivated by the gospel, you can move into your behaviors and the things that you desire, that you hope to happen in your life, and even if they do not happen, you're still centered on the gospel. But the principle-driven life, a person who just wants to wrap themselves in principles and live out principles, can be very shallow. And empty inside. And when they do not get what they want, uh, then it can be very confusing. And so they go from principle to principle, but they're hollow inside because principles do not affect the heart. It's really just another form of legalism. And with that in mind, principle driven life is too cumbersome as well. It's like, Every principle is a marble, and after a while, you're you are juggling a thousand marbles as you try to uh, balance these principles in your life. It can also lead to individualism. Uh, The gospel-centered life has an other-centered vibe to it. Uh, Your purpose in life is always going away from yourself to another person. The gospel-centered life has an object, and the object is not you primarily, for God so loved the world. The world is the object that, as Jesus said, I came not to be served but to serve, the principle Driven life, if you're not careful, can lead to individualism to where you're serving yourself and you really don't have a gospel-centered mindset. The principle driven life is not sustainable. Not sustainable because, again, it is not um, energizing you from within. The person who is affected by Christ is, is drinking from water that where they never thirst again they're living an internally abundant life regardless of what is going on externally in their lives the gospel-centered life internally from an ontological perspective will sustain you through all kinds of hardships and we see that in scripture and we also have seen that throughout church history Principle-driven life is just laying down rules and applications on a hollow shell, uh, and that is not sustainable, and it will lead to that confusing, cumbersome life. The principle-driven life is not the Bible's point. The point of the Bible is the gospel. And so we want to make sure that as we are living our lives that Jesus is the centerpiece. He is the exalted one And sometimes with the principle-driven life, we can be so focused on the principle that we miss the primary point of the Bible, and the primary point of the Bible is Christ. And so without throwing out principles altogether, We need to understand that we want to be guarded by how we think about principles, and we want to be more focused on a gospel-centered life. And then the second thing that can throw us off center line—now, there are many things that can move us off the centrality of the gospel. I recognize this. I'm only addressing two the danger of the principle-driven life, and then also the danger of pleasing God, because I see this so often uh, with those that I have cared for over the years. It's an easy temptation to replace the gospel with principles. It's an easy temptation to replace the gospel also with a mindset to work for God's favor, which I call the danger of pleasing God, trying to please God. Now, as I move through this particular slide, the intent here is to address our motives. We want to please God, obviously. We want to please Him, and so and the Bible talks about pleasing God, but we, we have to make sure that we are discerning our motives when we use that language, because it would not take much For an individual to move off the centrality of the gospel and be pleasing God the wrong way as they're trying to work for his favor or trying not to fall out of his disfavor. For example, someone who has come from, let's say, an authoritative background, maybe it's an authoritative parent or authoritative uh, religious community. And they have learned uh, to be a legalist. They have learned to... Perform The motive of their heart is, is to always be in favor with whoever the authority is or to always be uh, in favor uh, with the person that they don't want to be rejected by. And so when I talk about trying to please God, I want to make sure that we're clearly self-assessing our motives and make sure our motivation for pleasing God comes from a gospel-centric perspective and not the motive to gain God's God's favor uh, as though you could gain his favor. And so the intent here is to address our motives because everyone has a bend toward legalism. And that was Adam's issue, right? I mean, as soon as Adam sinned, he began to perform, and he wanted to please God, and we are cut from that same Adamic cloth. And because of that, many people do not understand what it means to please God. And so just as we don't throw principles out the window, there's a place for principles, we don't want to throw pleasing God out the window as well. There's a place for pleasing God But our ontology has to be centered on the gospel, or those principles will not be sustainable, and our desire to please God will be more about working to gain his favor uh, rather than pleasing him from a gospel-centered perspective. Now, one of the best ways, I think, to think about pleasing God is to first start with what is God pleased with. And in Mark 1.11 uh, it says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so the father is perfectly pleased with his son. Scripture could not be clearer on that matter. Jesus came to do the will of his father. He was the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, sacrifice for the sin of the world. And the father was abundantly pleased with his Son, and so that is where you want to begin when you talk about pleasing God. The Father was perfectly pleased with his Son, and if you are in the Son, S-O-N, if you are in the gospel, then you are pleasing God. Maybe an illustration like if you take one hand and put it inside the other hand, And so, there you have one hand perfectly, or as best you can, covering up the other hand. Then the father sees the son, and you are in the son. Therefore, you are pleasing God. Now, this is good news, pun intended. This is good news for a lot of people who are trying to please God by their behavior, and they don't yet understand. That they have already pleased God by getting in the sun. You cannot be more pleasing to God than being regenerated. There is no greater way to please the God, please God, than coming out of darkness and into light by getting in the body of Christ. You are perfectly pleased. Every sin that you ever committed and ever will commit has been forgiven. You will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul said, First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, you're going to stand faithful, and guiltless before God because you are in the Son. And so the Father is perfectly pleased with the Son, and you are in the Son. Therefore, the God God is perfectly pleased with you. Therefore, the priority that we have in our lives, because we are already pleasing God, is we want to live in the good of the gospel. We want to continue to be affected by the gospel from an ontological perspective, and as our internal being is being affected by Christ, and our motivation from that point is to live for Christ, we will continue to please God from a salvific perspective. We've been regenerated, therefore we are pleasing God. And because we're growing in our gospel centrality, we will continue to please God in our sanctification because we're continuing to be affected by the gospel. Religion says, Obey, and I will accept you. The gospel says, I accept you, therefore you obey. That is the formula. That is the sequence. The gospel has accepted you. You have been accepted because of the gospel, because of the work of Christ. You have been accepted. Out of that gospel impact on your life, now you obey. The danger of pleasing God is we can fall into a false religion worldview that says, Obey, and I will accept you. And that is anti-gospel. And so we are pleasing God by being in the Son. And as we continue to grow in our regeneration, we will continue to please God as we maintain our gospel perspective. Now, before I move to the next point of the final part of the webinar, the back half, where I want to—now I want to connect the gospel to everyday life. I want to take a brief coffee break and just make an appeal uh, to you uh to— My appeal is that you would help us in what we are doing. Our resources are free. You're watching this webinar. Didn't cost you a dime. Those of you who are listening to it, you're listening to it freely. And we thank God that we have the ability to do that. But we are well aware. I am well aware that that we cannot do this without some of you who underwrite this ministry financially. It takes right at $250,000 a year. There is a 10-member team, which is not enough, but it's what we have. We remain debt-free, and we only work within the finances that we have. But I thank God for those of you who do underwrite this ministry to help us to provide these resources. We have been a global ministry for more than a decade now, meaning that we are reaching around the world with the practical message of Christ, these resources, and that is a phenomenal thing. And I thank God for each and every one of you, those of you who are watching it freely and those of you who do have the ability, because I know that everybody can, who underwrites our ministry. And so here are five things that I would love for you to consider, one, two, three, four, or all five of those, whatever you're able to do. One, like our resources wherever you find them, like us on Facebook. Facebook, like us on Instagram, like us on Twitter, like us on LinkedIn, etc., etc. Number 2, share our resources. They are free. Take the URL, share them. Take articles, print them off, share them, send the podcast to whomever you wish, whosoever will. Like our resources, share them. Uh, write a review, a podcast review, for example, Life Over Coffee. Uh, write a review for our Amazon books on the Amazon site. That y- y- You might not believe it, but... The average person knows 250 people, and if you like it, if you share it, if you write a review, you're going to impact more lives than you can imagine, and then each one of them will impact lives as well if they will do similarly, and that's how you grow organically. So like, share, write. And then some of you are able to support us on a monthly or annual basis. If you're able to do that, please go to our website, hit the donate button, and And do that. And then some of you can make a one-time donation. There was a lady that just made a $50 donation yesterday. Uh, She can't support us regularly because of her financial situation. She used to, but finances change, and I do understand that. But she loves our resources, and she wants to help in whatever way that she can, and so she made a $50 donation. So take a look at these five things, ask God what you can do, and then partner with us in this great gospel adventure as we share the practical message of Christ around the world. It is a fantastic, stunning, and humbling opportunity that we have. All right. Before you can encourage a person to live out functional realities, you must help them understand and live in ontological realities, and that is the first half of this webinar. I've tried to be clear and as thorough as I can be within the time frame that I have uh, to focus on what the gospel is, what the gospel is not, and why it's absolutely vital That we understand that we have to live in ontological realities before we go out and say things to people, or do things for people. We don't want to be principle-driven. We don't want to be doing these things because we're pleasing, trying to please God, working for his favor, or trying not to be rejected. We want to be growing in our affection of the gospel, in our souls, where our minds are saturated by the gospel, and is continuing to mature ontologically. And as that is riveted in our souls, then we can start thinking about living functional realities, the things that we think, the things that we say, and the things that we do. The gospel is the person and work of Christ, and we want to emulate Christ, so we want our person to be saturated by the gospel, and we want our behaviors to be uh, exemplifying the gospel. If the gospel has appropriately affected an individual, you can begin to process, you can can begin the process of connecting the gospel to the practical realities of their life. And as I said earlier, this is a subjective assessment. We can't know people's hearts, but minimally we can be clear in talking about the criticalness, the essentialness of being gospel-centered from an ontological perspective. And then we want to appeal to God. We want to plead uh, with God to work in their hearts so that they, they, f- they realize the necessity of being gospel-centered internally. And if you've done the best that you can possibly do, then your discipleship can move into practical realities. Now, with that in mind, what I want to do is uh, what, the, what the title of the webinar suggests. How do we connect Christ? How do we connect the gospel to everyday life? And the way that I want to do that with ontological realities in place, and you're practically affected by the gospel, you're ready to help them to connect the gospel to everyday living. So I want to present to you, as you see on the screen here, there's a pinwheel Uh, for those of you that are listening to Uh, the podcast, there is a a pie, a piece of pie, a pinwheel, and there are 12 pieces in it. And I'm going to present to you 12 different behaviors. And as we work through these behaviors, uh, I'm going to connect the gospel to each one of these behaviors. And so without more explanation, let's just talk about uh, the first one, the first gospel connection that I want to make is forgiveness. This is a huge part uh, in all of our lives. Uh, all of us have been in that place where we have needed forgiveness, and we've been in that place where we needed to forgive others, and uh, we will always be in that place. And so forgiveness, a, a everyday life situation. Is so common to all of us, and we want to make sure that the forgiveness that we do is connected to our ontology, is connected to Christ, or connected to the gospel. The text that I have in mind—and by the way, all of these texts that I'm going to present to you with these 12 uh, concepts like forgiveness. All of the text will be connected to the gospel. In Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35, I would encourage you to read the uh, entire passage there, all of those verses. I only have a snippet here on the screen, and the snippet says, as I had mercy on you. This is the story where uh, the guy owed a a bunch of money uh, to his master, and his master forgave him all of that debt, and then the guy went out and he began to beat up this person who owed him a far lesser debt. We're talking about forgiveness here, and the master found out about what the guy was doing, and then he rebuked him. And he says, basically, why can't you have mercy on that person as I had mercy on you? Do you see the gospel connection? See, our motivation to forgive others is born out of the gospel. We owed God an, an infinite debt, and God paid that debt through the gospel. Therefore, that should be our motivation to forgive others. A person that cannot forgive someone doesn't understand the gospel, plain and simple. Now, when it comes to forgiveness, there are two ways that you can forgive someone. You can forgive someone transactionally. That is the individual who is asking you for forgiveness. And you can forgive someone attitudinally. That is the person who is not asking you for forgiveness, but yet you don't want to be incarcerated by what they have done to you. And so minimally, you can forgive them attitudinally, even though they may never be forgiven by God. My dad, for example, I cannot transact transact forgiveness from him, with him, because he died when I was 19. I didn't become a Christian until I was 25, and so there will never be any transactional forgiveness there, but I do not have to be incarcerated by his evil that he perpetrated on me. Therefore, I can come to the place of attitudinally forgiving forgiving him, and so I am free from it, though he is not, and the motivation for me to attitudinally forgive him— Is because of the gospel, as we see here in this short snippet from Matthew 18, as I had mercy on you. And so if you can't have mercy on someone minimally attitudinally, then there is a breakdown in a gospel connection. Number two is kindness. The text is Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. You're familiar with this text. I have a snippet here of that as well. It says, be kind to one another. And then as you move to the end of the sentence, Paul gives us the motivation. He says, as God, in Christ— Forgave you. Now you know the whole text is be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and so he's connecting different attitudes that we should have uh, toward one another. I am just using kindness here. Uh, you could say that uh, you could connect the gospel to tender-heartedness. I have already connected the gospel to forgiveness, uh, but Paul is connecting the gospel to kindness as well in Ephesians 4. So why do you want to be kind to someone because of the gospel? There is your gospel connection. The third one is gratitude. I am using Luke uh, 747. That may be a good way to uh, remember it. 747, the airplane. Uh, This is the story where Jesus went into Peter's house, and the woman came in, and she wept and wept on his feet, and then Peter uh, was—the disciples were having a problem with this, and Jesus rebuked them. And he talked about how, I came into your home, and you didn't do anything, and this woman has not stopped crying over me the whole time. And he makes his statement, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The inverse is true. He who is forgiven much loves a lot. This woman was expressing uh, transcendent extreme gratitude for Christ because she realized that she was forgiven so much. And so when you're interacting with someone or trying to help someone who really just is ungrateful, maybe they are a grumbler or a complainer, they're always on the negative side of things they're just generally unhappy or maybe they are bitter i am not negating the fact that that bad things have happened to them usually that that is what is going on they've had maybe a life of disappointment or a series of disappointments in their life and so being careful as you interact with them at some point you want to talk about this idea of gratitude and they want to come to this place of gratitude. And if they say, why? Well, uh, if you truly understand what the gospel means, that, that we were in a, a deep pit, we were in the mire of our sin. Paul said it another way in First 1 Timothy 1.15, that he's the foremost sinner, that the gap between you and Christ could not be farther apart. I mean, me and Hitler... And any other evil person that you want to think about, Uh, we're all at the same place. And then God came into your life, and he rescued you out of that pit and placed you on a rock. This woman realized that, and because she realized she had been forgiven so much— Her heart was full of gratitude. And so if you're interacting with a person who is ungrateful and ingrate, you want to be careful about uh, their situation that they're in. You want to truly understand them. You don't want to move too quickly by confronting them and rebuking them. You want to care for them. There is a grief aspect to our problems, but at some point, we have to be moving toward gratitude, and we connect that gratitude to the gospel. This is how we connect the gospel to everyday life. And Luke 747 gives us a beautiful gospel connection with this lady. Number four is encouragement. The verse of scripture that I have is Romans 2.4. Uh, you know this passage or this verse rather, the sentence. Here's a part of it. The kindness of God leads to repentance. We find great encouragement from God. The gospel is encouraging, and as we think about the kindness of God that led to our repentance, we are encouraged, and so we want to emulate that in our lives. If you have a a person that uh, is is struggling and they need to come to a place of change or a place of repentance, uh, they need to grow in their encouragement. They need to reflect back on the kindness of God in their life. It was the kindness of God that led to repentance. And when I think about the gospel, and I think you probably have this experience too, when you think about the kindness of God that led to your repentance, there are many effects to that, but one of those effects is encouragement. The fifth one here of the 12 concepts or behaviors or attitudes that I want to communicate to you is serving. And that verse would be Mark 10, 45, and that is, we see here, the attitude of the gospel. Christ said it this way, I did not come here to be served, I came to serve. That is a huge aspect of the gospel. I talked about it earlier, that the gospel has an other-centered force to it. You're moving away from yourself toward the object, the person who, the individual that you want to serve. And so to be gospel-centered, I was talking about this with the danger of principles. Principles can lead to individualism, where I'm trying to be the best version of myself. I'm trying to be whatever it is that I'm I'm applying this principle to my life so that I can become, well, it's okay to become a better person, but if we're not motivated internally by the gospel, uh, then there can be selfish ambition involved there. And you'll see a lot of that in the, the coaching profession. Or you'll see a lot of that on LinkedIn, for example, where people are teaching principles so that you can take your life, uh, take charge of your life and be all that God wants you to be, you know, et cetera. Well, there's an individualistic aspect to that. A gospel-centered aspect, you can be the best version of yourself, but you're motivated by the gospel. And those are two different personalities. Those are two different individuals. And so as we connect the gospel or Christ to our lives, one of those connections that we want to make is a servant's heart. Are you a servant? Is it your desire to serve others? When you, the, the, the object that you have in mind is not you, but it is others, well, then you are being gospel-centered. Another aspect, number six here on our pinwheel, is suffering. The text is First Peter 2, 18 through 25, a powerful passage of Scripture. Here is a snippet. Christ is our example so that we might follow in his steps. There's no way to get around this. The, to be gospel-centered implies that they will be suffering. And if you want to, there's two ways to suffer. You can suffer well, and you can suffer poorly. If you want to suffer well, uh, then you want your mind saturated by the life of Christ, the the life and death, the suffering of Christ. He gave the gospel. gave us an example. This whole passage here in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25 is about suffering. It is a suffering-centered passage. And Peter is very clear. The gospel is your example if you want to suffer well. That is the gospel connection that you want to make. Number seven, humility. In Matthew 26, 39, this is Jesus in the Garden of Garden of Gethsemane. And in this, you know this verse has been quoted often, or a part of this verse, not as I will, but as you will. This is the gospel submitting himself. This also ties to suffering, the previous concept that we were looking at. But in Matthew 26, 39, we see the gospel humiliated uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, but yet he was so focused on doing the will of his father that he was willing to submit himself to his father's will. Of course, we know how that that went. Of course, there was a death, but there was a resurrection. There was an ascension. There's always an end of the story, and the end of the story is typically not how we think about it. We could be myopic in how we look at our own personal narratives, uh, but Jesus here was modeling humility and so we want to make that gospel connection in our life as we submit ourselves to the Father's will. And then there is modeling. As we see in Ephesians 5.1, it could not be clearer. Be imitators of God. Paul said it another way in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow the gospel. In Philippians 4.9, Paul says what you've learned and heard and received uh, in me uh, do those things and the God of peace will be with you it is apparent that you want to model the gospel we want to be imitators of Christ and if we have been rightly affected by the gospel then there's no discontinuity or there should not be a discontinuity between who we are ontologically and what we do behaviorally therefore we are imitating God because our hearts have been rightly affected by the gospel, and then there is confession. I have two verses here: First John one nine and James five sixteen. Confess your sins. In one nine, it says, "Confess your sins, and you will be forgiven of those sins." That is the power. of of the gospel. Because of the gospel, we are motivated to confess our sins. James says, confess our sins to one another. There are times when that is appropriate, but with the right gospel connection, we would be motivated to do that because there can be reconciliation. There can be healing in relationships. There can also be healing in our own selves by being honest about who we are. And so because of the gospel, we don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to hide. We don't have anything to protect. The gospel allows us to be free even with the things that are wrong with us. What I mean by that is we can openly confess those things appropriately because of the power of, God, of the gospel that works in us. We are fully, completely secure in Christ. He is perfectly pleased in us, so there is no shame here. So when we have done wrong, we want to connect that to the gospel, and there is freedom in confessing those things appropriately to the right people. And then there is self-righteousness, number 10. I have Luke 16, 15, and then 1 Timothy 1:15, which I mentioned earlier. In Luke 16, 15— Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. And part of his rebuke is what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, the verse I referenced earlier, Paul is talking about being the foremost sinner or the chief of sinners. And so we don't exalt ourselves among others. Uh, selfish ambition. This is an abomination to God. And so you have two people here. You have the Pharisees in Luke 16. And then you have Paul in 1 Timothy 1, and they are antithetical. One of them has been riveted by the gospel, and as he thinks about his life, he says, I was the foremost sinner. But then he transitions in verse 16, but God had mercy on me. He recognized the deplorable state, the condition of his soul, and the gospel transformed him. Now, this also ties back into humility, as I was talking uh, earlier, and Because Paul was so affected by the gospel, he walked in humility, and he really eschewed self-righteousness. He could not elevate himself. He would not elevate himself because the gospel, a right understanding of the gospel, would not permit him to do that. Of course, the Pharisees did not have a right understanding of the gospel. They were working within their own religious system, their legalistic system, which was a self-exalting system, and that was an abomination to God. And then number 11 of our 12 aspects is anger. In 1 Peter 2, 1 and 5, Peter uh, connects anger uh, to the gospel. He says, put away anger as newborn babes in Christ. There is a gospel connection here to our anger. Why do you want to put a Put away anger. You're a newborn babe in Christ. Because of the gospel, you can put away anger. And there are many other passages on anger for those of us that struggle with it. And whatever iteration that may be, uh, we do want to bring the gospel to bear on it and make sure that, that we are working and doing all that we can do to rid ourselves of any manifestation of anger that we may have. And then finally, a pornography. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 4, we learn that spouses do not have authority over their bodies. These are Christians who have been affected by the gospel, and because there is an other-centered nature to the gospel, as they connect the gospel to sexuality, then there is a desire to serve and not to be served. Pornography is a self-serving Habit habituation that some people get themselves into. It is an anti gospel worldview and behavior, completely different from what the gospel is as it applies to sexuality. And so we want to connect the gospel to our sexuality. And therefore, we can one of the ways that we can learn how to do that is in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4. I want you to look at the pinwheel now, and these are just 12 gospel connections that I have made. If you would to if you were to slow down and go back through the slides and pull out all of these verses and then bring other verses on the same subject like forgiveness for example or or anger or self-righteousness and you bring other verses in on that you can begin to really work through just these 12 aspects. This is what I want you to think about. Imagine if all of us were excelling just in these 12 things? If the gospel was, has so affected us internally, and it was spilling out and connecting to just these 12 things, imagine how transformative that would be in the local church. It's something to think about. It's a powerful thought. And I would appeal to any of you to back up through this webinar and to uh, begin to tack those verses uh, in your mind and then to work through them, studying them exegetically and with commentaries, and then bring other verses in so that you can make these solid gospel connections to forgiveness, kindness, gratitude, encouragement, serving, serving, not surfing, uh, suffering, humility, modeling, confession, self-righteousness, anger, and pornography. Let me wrap up the webinar by talking about the final point, application questions and reflective thoughts. Practically connecting the gospel to your life so that you can impact others. Again, there's always an other-centered aspect to the gospel-centered life. And so with that, uh, I have a few questions for you. Why do you want to change, or what is your motive for change? Now, you can answer that question yourself, but if you're discipling someone, You want to ask this question, and maybe you would not ask it as directly as I have. Remember, you have a lot of context here for this question that I just asked you. They will not have that context. And so you want to bring them up to speed and then work them through their motivation for change. Uh, Many times, for example, if you go back to the couple that's having marriage trouble, you say, why do you want to change so I can get my spouse back? What is your motivation for change so I can get my spouse back, so that we can have a marriage that looks like X, Y, Z? Well, that's not a bad motive, uh, but that cannot be the primary motive. Because if that's the primary motive, then you can just apply principles to that. Just give me six principles. This is what people – you know, people will come and they say, well, we have a communication problem, so give me some tips on communication. They want principles for communication. And it's like, well, no, I mean, you can lay these principles down on a shell of an individual, and you can practice these tips. But as I said, with the principle-driven life, it's cumbersome, it's confusing, it's not sustainable. And so you want to make sure that our motivation is central, That that is gospel-centered. And so therefore, uh, it is important to answer this question, what is the gospel? And why is it vital to define the gospel correctly? And I trust you would be able to answer that question. Uh, now, number three: How has the gospel affected you? And the follow-up question is: How would a friend answer that question about you? Now, if you're married, it may be a good opportunity. Maybe you can show this pinwheel uh, to your spouse, and so as you look at this spouse, uh, as you look at this pinwheel, spouse, uh, how has the gospel affected me? a huge leadership opportunity for the husband or the wife to ask their spouse this question, or for a parent to ask the child. Uh, Walk them through, build a theology of gospel-centered life in their mind, so that they have the full context of why you're asking this question and the kind of answer that you're looking for. And if they have the context and you, like, say, show them that pinwheel of those 12 things, and they see that, and it's like, Okay, well, uh, then you can begin to talk through it. So how has the gospel affected you, and how would a friend answer that question about you? Number four, I have two more. Uh, Number four, what are your gospel companions? And the follow-up is, how do they serve you? I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 15, where good companions corrupt. I don't say, I'm not asking who are your gospel companions. I mean, that that's part of the answer, but I'm asking what. I had a friend in church ask me uh, Sunday at the church meeting uh, about uh, good companions, because I talked about talked to him about that in the past, and he understood that I wasn't clear to him in the past, and he understood it as who, meaning different people in his life. So he goes to a Bible study, goes to a small group, and he has good companions, which is excellent, but I also wanted him to understand that good companions is not just human beings. Good companions are other things, like uh, the Bible, for example, is an excellent is an outstanding companion. Prayer is a good gospel companion. Music is a good gospel companion. And so as you think about gospel companions, who or what are they? And then the follow-up is, how do those gospel companions serve you? And then the final question is, number five, how will you model, lead, teach, and motivate gospel-centered living. The teacher always learns more than the student. Therefore, you don't want to be the Dead Sea where you take in this information. That's kind of like the principle-driven life. But you want to live a gospel-centered life, and so now you want to model the gospel. You want to lead people from a gospel-centric worldview. You want to be able to teach these things, and of course you want to come alongside people, not just teach them to where they're gaining knowledge, but you want to motivate them to live gospel in a gospel-centered way. And so the question is, how will you model, lead, teach, and motivate gospel-centered living? I would encourage you to take a screenshot of these five questions, and this could be a long-term small group discussion. uh, Getting together, like if you have a church small group or uh, any group where two or three Three are gathered, and that could be your spouse and family or friends, whomever it is, and you work through these five questions and take as long as you need, but I would encourage you to make sure you have the full context. And so it's everything that I said over the past 60 minutes that flow into these questions and then use these questions as long as you need to to continue to reshape ourselves, yourselves, ontologically, and then also externally. Thank you so much for listening to uh, this webinar. For those who have listened listened through the podcast, those of you who have watched it, thank you also uh, for viewing it. As always, if you have any questions, please reach out to our ministry We have free uh, community forums, and so you can jump on our forums and ask any question pertaining to life and godliness. If you have a question about how to connect the gospel to everyday life, well, please ask that question as well. My name is Rick Thomas, and I'm very grateful uh, that you have uh, been with me over the past hour to watch this webinar. May God bless you.